Good morning. Did you guys hear what she read? Yeah, we got a doozy this morning. This is part of the reason why we do expository preaching, whereas we just preach through books of the Bible, because um, a lot of times no one would choose to just preach a sermon that's straight up on predestination. Uh, but that's what we've got before us this morning, because um, it's an elephant in the text. I mean, you guys have experienced elephants in the room in your own life. You've got situations and there's an issue going in and you're in a group of people and everybody's uncomfortable about what it is. Everybody knows there's some level of discomfort. There's some level of unease, but no one's willing to say what it is. No one's willing to acknowledge what it is, deal with what it is. And so everyone's just kind of united in this false hope that if we ignore it long enough, it'll go away. That is not how we want to treat Scripture. That is not how we want to treat God's holy word when we come to something like this. That's difficult. Um, and you, you read through, you know, last week when we introduced the book of Ephesians and read through the whole thing, we saw how often it speaks of being chosen and being predestined and being elect. And so this morning, even as we're just getting going into this uh, series, before we start really going through just straight through, I thought, hey, we need to just talk about the elephant that's in the text, um, this idea of predestination, and try to get our arms around it a little bit. Because, I mean, it, it is clear <clears throat> that this word is uh, right here before us. You've got verse 4, as she read, even as he, God, Jesus, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Then down in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so this morning, I, I just want to deal with that. I want to deal with this giant, often unaddressed elephant in the text and try to bring at least some beginning levels of understanding to the mysterious interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And the call for humans to repent and believe, to trust in Christ. And so as we do this, we need to have a lot of grace and humility towards others and in our own hearts and minds. There is nothing, and I'll explain this, there is nothing that is, gets on my nerves more than a first-year seminary student. And that is somebody who's got just enough theology to think they know what they're talking about, but not enough to realize I have no clue what I'm talking about. Like by the time you get to year three, four, and five, you realize there's so much I don't know. And there's a humility that comes with that. And so I want to ask all of us to have some humility this morning and not be, well, I've got this together and all you peons need to get with me where I'm at. No, no, no. If that's your attitude, you're the peon, right? And so let's have humility. Let's have grace with one another. Let's be open. Let's be teachable. Perhaps learning from the scripture, seeing in the Bible today, things maybe we haven't seen before that may rattle us a little bit. I mean, that's what the Bible does. It rattles us. It should continually do that till we go home to be with the Lord. As it, come, as it calls to things that we should believe and things that we should live. Both of those things should rattle us at times. And so I want us to have grace and humility towards one another. 
There are certain things about divine sovereignty that we can't deny. And then some of the finer points we can debate a little bit. And so let's be open, let's be humble, let's be grace-filled towards one another. And so what I want to do to just get started is I want to give us just a great big survey of Scripture. A big survey of Scripture because I want to show you that predestination, okay, election, is not just here in Ephesians 1. It's actually all over the Bible. And I also want to show you that human responsibility, the idea of whosoever will, is not just in John 3.16, but is also all over the Bible. And so, sit back, listen. I'm going to try to fly through these. Uh, I'm not going to have you turn because there's too many. Um, we're going to start with just the New Testament to keep it simple, and then I'll, I'll flip to the Old Testament a little bit here in a minute. But we'll start Matthew 24, verse 23. Jesus is talking about the end times, and he says this. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 6.35-48, a little bit of a longer passage. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So you've got both in, the, in that. John chapter 10. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Down in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. 
John chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Acts chapter 2, verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. One who has heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 24. Longer passage. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. He's quoting from Genesis And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? And another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Romans 10, one chapter later, after all that, 
Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on his name. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Becca just read that one a minute ago, so for time we'll just keep going. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in holy in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. First Timothy chapter 2, on the other hand, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Titus chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 2 John 1, 1. The elder to the elect lady, that's a church, and her children, the members, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. And so that's just a sampling of the New Testament. And so hopefully just from that, it becomes pretty evident to you that we see very clearly both divine sovereignty and human responsibility clearly in the Scripture, right? And that's just a sampling of the New Testament. The Old Testament takes up two-thirds of the Bible. We haven't even touched that. We could be there for days and days and days. Uh, I'll give you just a couple of quick ones. Who were the chosen people of God? Israel. Why? Because God wanted to. Right? I mean, Abraham, he comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the, the father of the Israel nation. Abraham is a Middle Eastern, false-worshipping pagan. And he says, you're going to be mine now. He says, I, you're going to be mine. And I, and I'm going to you know, go to a land that I'll show you and I'll make you a great nation. So Abraham didn't do anything. God chose him. He just did. I mean, if we refuse to believe in a God who has the right to make choices about his creation, we have a flawed understanding of the godness of God. Now, you make choices, right? I mean, this morning I was like, should I wear khakis today or should I wear blue jeans? Should I tuck my shirt in or should I not tuck my shirt in? Well, next week we're going to have the Lord's Supper, so I'll probably wear a tie, so I'll go with jeans today, right? We, we, I mean, we make choices. Everybody makes choices. God makes choices. And so God chose Abraham. Why? Because he wanted to. 
And so, but then he says, hey, you need to, I mean, you see a human responsibility as well, because he says, now you go and I'll make you a great nation. So Abraham had to follow as well. So you've got both. Jeremiah 25, you see it again. God divinely and sovereignly sends Babylon to go attack Judah because, I mean, this is first and second Kings. Judah's run away from God. So he sends Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to go attack them. Divinely, sovereignly does that. And yet he punishes Babylon for going and doing that. So they had the freedom to do it, yet God's working in it. You've got that interplay of both of them. Psalm 139 that Jeff read earlier today. And verses very near and dear to our hearts as we think about the sanctity of all human life, including unborn children. And it says in verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Isaiah 46, verse 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then bouncing back to the New Testament again, just think about, I mean, Ephesians, right? The author's Paul. Think about how he became a believer. I mean, he's a murderer, right? And he's there at the murder of a guy named Stephen and Stephen prays and eventually God answers Stephen's prayer. Stephen dies because Paul's on his way to Damascus. He's going to go persecute more Christians. And on his way, Jesus comes down, blinds him, knocks him off his horse, and converts him. Now, we can debate it all day long. That's predestination, right? I mean, like, if if God comes down, knocks you off your horse, blinds you, and says, you're mine now, you're predestined. (laughs) And then maybe the... Most obvious one, but I think we miss it sometimes. Think about the cross. Think about the cross. This interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Like who planned the death of the sinless Son of God that our sins could be atoned for? From before the foundations of the earth? That we could have a relationship, that we could have eternal life? Who planned that so much so that it's prophesied all throughout the Old Testament... Ephesians 3, or Ephesians, Genesis 3, we see it the first time. A promise that one will come and crush the head of the serpent. Who planned all that? God did. And yet, it's those who killed Christ that are called lawless men. Listen to Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, listen, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Are you guys thoroughly confused yet? Good. That's where we should be. And so taking all that we have read into account, 
Is God sovereign? Yes. Is he sovereign in election and predestination? Yes. Does he have the right as creator to make choices of his, cre- of his creation freely just because of the fact that he's God? Yes. Does man have a responsibility to personally and freely choose to repent and believe the gospel? Yes. Is there tension there? Yes. And and, and that's where, like, yes, there is. There is tension there, and there's going to be tension there always. And so if you don't hear anything else I say today, and you don't write down anything else I say today, hear this or write this down or both. I'll repeat it. Both human responsibility, right, the whosoever will part, and divine sovereignty, predestination and election, are taught in Scripture. So if we are going to be biblical, we must believe them both. Both human responsibility and divine sovereignty are taught in Scripture. So if we are going to be biblical, we must believe them both. Even if our limited and finite minds, three-pound fallen brains, can't understand, understand it all. And again, is there tension there? Absolutely. Is there mystery there? Yes. And that's okay. We need to become okay with God being mysterious. We're okay with Him being mysterious in many things, but when it comes to predestination and election, we don't want to let Him be mysterious anymore. See, all throughout Scripture, you see miracles happening. So you've got the burning of the bush, you've got the parting of the Red Sea... You've got Jesus raising people back from the dead, healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 people with uh, five loaves and two fish, resurrecting himself from the dead. These are all mysterious and miraculous things. And as believers, we rightly believe them. We believe that Jesus was a baby that Mary and Joseph held and nurtured and fed and changed his diapers, yet at the same time, as Hebrews 1 says, he's upholding the universe by the word of his power. We believe that Jesus is simultaneously fully God and fully human. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union of Christ. At the same time, fully God, fully man, that's mysterious. The Trinity is mysterious. And friends, it's the same thing with divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's mysterious. But what we want to do is because that makes us uncomfortable, we don't want to let God be mysterious in that. He can be mysterious in other things, but in this, no, 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 we're not going to let him be mysterious in this. And so what we'll do sometimes is we'll think, you know, man, it's got to be one or the other. I mean, there's no way that these two things that appear contradictory to me could ever jive together. It's got to be one or the other. And so some people will be like, well, then it's, com- it's completely up to man to choose Jesus. Completely up to man to choose Jesus. Which makes Jesus look like a really needy sixth grader at a middle school dance, biting his nails. Somebody pick me. Somebody pick me. Not the reigning king of kings and lord of lords who's in need of anything. 
who's not in need of anything, if I said that wrong. On the other extreme, you have some people, and they'll be like, well, it's, it's not about man at all. It is totally uh, God. God's going to save who He's going to save, and it doesn't matter if you want to get saved or not. If you're predestined, you're predestined. If you're not, well, too bad. And so that makes God look like He's up in heaven playing a game of duck, 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 damned, duck, 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 damned. <laughs> not Jesus who's mourning over Jerusalem and the lost souls there who are rejecting Him. And so let me again summarize. The Bible definitely, clearly teaches that God is sovereign in salvation and has electing and predestinating purposes. You can't read the Bible honestly and straightforward and not see that. God is sovereign in salvation. At the same time, the Bible definitely, clearly teaches that man has the responsibility to repent and choose to believe the gospel. You can't read the Bible honestly and straightforward and not see that. They are both there. They are both true. And sometimes people will be like, well, Joe, it, it, I mean, it, the idea that, that God would choose some and not others, that's, that's not fair. I want to stop us right there. We do not even want to enter into the fair conversation. Because what's fair is we all go to hell. That's what's fair. We've all sinned. We've all fallen. We all deserve hell. We've all rebelled against God. We've all rejected Him. What's fair based upon our sin is that there's no hope and there's no chance for anybody. We all go to hell. That's fair. That's what's deserved. And so the fact that God chooses to save some is nothing but unbelievable graciousness. He doesn't have to save any. But in mercy and grace and love, He saves, as the New Testament puts it, the many. And so predestination is not the work of an unfair or capricious, angry God, but rather the display of God's sovereign, fatherly care to make sure that His people get all the way home. Predestination is not the work of an unfair or capricious, angry God, but rather the display of God's sovereign, fatherly care to make sure that His people get all the way home. And yeah, there's tension there. We should be uncomfortable. And with this apparent paradox, this antimony, how do these two things come together? And so let me, in this idea of... I mean, because this idea of where we like to pit one against the other, and we like to pick one or the other, we've got to learn to just not do that, to be okay with the tension, to live in the tension. We've got to resist the urge to treat the Bible like a theological buffet where you grab and eat the things you like and throw away the things you don't like. We need to do that as it calls us to what, is, what we should believe. We've got to do that as it calls us to how we should live as well. We must resist the urge to dismiss Scripture that doesn't fit what we want to be true. Whether it's theology like we're talking about today or sexuality. You can't just kick out what you don't like. There's an old Greek myth where there was a guy named Procrastius. And he built 
a monster. And he built this monster an outfit, right? So he's, you know, he liked to accessorize his creations. So he, he builds this thing an outfit. But after he makes these two things, the monster and the outfit for the monster to the wear, it turns out that the monster was too big for the outfit. And so to fix this, he took out a saw and cut his monster off at the knees so the outfit wouldn't fit. The moral of the story is, no, dummy, lengthen your outfit. Don't cut your monster off at the knees. And so today, teachers of philosophy or law use this to refer to someone who has a theory about something, and the facts are more than that theory. So then rather than enlarging their theory to fit the facts, they simply cut off the facts or explain away the ones that they don't know. And folks, they may do that with impeachment trials, but we should not do that with Scripture. Don't cut Scripture off at the knees. Don't, don't be like, well, nope, 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 nope. Don't be Thomas Jefferson and cut sections of the Bible out that you don't like just so it'll fit your theology. His was deism. Ours is Christianity. Don't do that. Don't throw things out to try to make it fit your framework or understanding. Expand your framework or understanding to fit the Scriptures. Even if it means that you can't totally explain or understand it. Mystery is okay. After all, Isaiah 55, 9 is also in the Bible. And it says this. God's ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so this whole big idea, that's like number one for today, just this whole thing, you got to believe both, is summed up best by the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in a sermon he preached on August 1st, 1858, entitled Sovereign Grace and Man's Responsibility. He says this. I see in one place God presiding over all in providence. And yet I see and, can, and I cannot help seeing that man acts as he pleases. And that God has left his actions to his own will in a great measure. Now if I were to declare that man was so free to act that there was no precedence of God over his actions, I should be driven very near to atheism. And if, on the other hand, I declare that God so overrules all things as that man is not free enough to be responsible, I'm driven at once into antinomianism or fatalism. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil. But one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines 
that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge. And they will... Jeff is a hero. I'll read that last sentence all the way through again. These two truths I do believe. Here we go. These two truths I do not believe. I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil. But one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that should pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge. And they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God. From whence all truth doth spring. You ask me to reconcile the two? I answer, they do not want any reconcilement. I never tried to reconcile them to myself because I could never see a discrepancy. Both are true. No two truths can be inconsistent with each other. And what you have to do is believe them both. And so kind of big point from today, big takeaway from today, is to understand that predestination is a biblical legit truth. Human responsibility is a biblical legit truth. Okay, And we don't need to be scared to talk about predestination. We don't, need to be, uh, you know, we, don't, we don't want to ignore it as an elephant in the text. Rather, we want to actually see that it's something that gives hope. And so over the weeks to come, I'm not going to be explaining predestination away every time we come to it. I'm just going to rock along forward as Paul does with it. But before we go home today, I do want to share with you a couple of quick examples of hope that flow out of God's sovereignty and predestinating purposes. All right, just a couple. Actually, a few, because it's three. First of all, first of all, it gives, it gives hope to our prayers for the salvation of others. Divine sovereignty gives hope to our prayers for the salvation of others. Because if God isn't sovereign in salvation, I would think, okay, if Salvation is really only about man of his own free will choosing Jesus. Then we can't pray for Jesus to save so and so. Because that would be asking God to violate their free will. If it's only man. If it's completely and utterly only up to man. We can't pray that way. We can't even ask God to soften their hearts. Because again that's violating their free will. But because God is sovereign in salvation, we can cry out to him to sovereignly just reach into so-and-so's life and save them. I mean, how many times have you heard stories about, you know, my mother prayed for me for years and years and years, and I was running from God as hard as I could, and then something happened, and I became a believer. Right? The guy wasn't seeking Jesus. He was running from him, and God answered her prayers. And saved him. Because he's sovereign. He can do that. And so pray. That's my encouragement. Pray for your lost family member. Pray for your co-worker who does not know Christ. Pray that God would save them. He can. He can. So pray boldly for that. Secondly, it also it guarantees that evangelism will be effective. 
God's divine sovereignty guarantees that evangelism will be effective. Someone's like, evangelism? I mean, if God's going to save him, he's going to save, then why evangelize? Well, here's why. Two reasons. One, he tells us to. Secondly, that's how God saves people. Evangelism, preaching, sharing the gospel is God's appointed means to see his elect people saved. And the reason our evangelism is guaranteed to have success somewhere is because God has a people he's going to save. And that's what the idea of election is all about. God has a people. In Ephesians 1.4, he has chosen them before the foundation of the world. And so evangelism is sure because God will call his elect. I mean, John 10, 14, and we read earlier, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. And so Jesus has a people that he will say And he works through us to save them. And that's why we can have confidence in sharing Christ. There are people who will respond. And so let that embolden you. Let that encourage you. Jesus, John 10, he has sheep. They're already his. And he must bring them also. And they will listen to his voice. Which means there is no one who is beyond the reach of his arm. And so we can't think that this person over here is pointless to share the gospel with because they'll never respond. Because that just shows pride. Why do you think you responded? Because you were so much better than them? No. And so a proper understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation should squash our pride. Because we don't deserve anything. We didn't do anything. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And so this should lead us all humbled and eager to share with anyone the salvation that Christ offers, knowing that Christ will save people. He will. And then finally this morning, I just want you to see the hope that's found in the fact that God's electing and predestinating purposes, as hard as they are to understand and as uncomfortable and tension they have, they are born out of love. It's all born out of love. Because coming full circle back to Ephesians chapter 1, Becca read from earlier, there are two super important words you need to see right before verse 5. So if you, if you have your Bible open there in Ephesians chapter 1. There are two super important words right before verse 5 begins. I've always been curious, like, why did they put verse 5 there? Why didn't they move it over to where? Because, I mean, like, when Paul wrote this, he wasn't like, verse 1, later, verse 2. Like, he just wrote a letter. And then people put in chapters and verses later so we could do what we're doing now. Hey, open up to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and you know where to look. I've always been like, that's a weird place to put 5. But look at the... Nevertheless, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Look at... (laughs) 
Look at the two words before verse 5 begins. Super important words. It says he predestined us in what? In love. In love. So whatever you do, connect predestination and love. They go together. Don't let your idea ever swing over into a view of a capricious God who's unloving and cold-hearted and cruel. It says, in love, the love of Jesus, the love of God, in love, He predestined us. And think about this just in your own life for a minute. That before the foundation of the earth, Knowing at that time, like all your life was future, right? Before the foundation of the earth, knowing everything that you would ever do, ever think, ever say, ever dream about, ever anything. Knowing all of that, every moment of sin, every time you rejected God, every time you spit in his face again, every time you did again what you'd always said you would never do again and you did it again, every time. Knowing all of that before the foundation of the earth, he still chose to set his affection on you and say, that one, that one's mine. And I am going to save her and I am going to love her and I am going to provide for her and be with her and care for her and pour my love out on her. And I'm going to bring her all the way home. That is what... Christ, if you are in Christ, that is what he did for you. Before the foundations of the earth, he set his affections upon you and said, that one, that one's mine. Do you see the goodness and love of God in this? Even as hard as it is to understand at times. That he would do that for his people. That he would choose us. In love, not based upon anything we do or anything that's inside of us, just because. That's predestination. And he did it in love. And so it's kind of like this. You chose hell, God chose heaven. You chose damnation, God chose salvation. You chose to run from God, and God chose to run after you. And so what this means is that it doesn't matter how bad you are. God can save you. It doesn't matter where you live. God can save you. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or what you failed to do, or what someone's done to you. God can save you. It doesn't matter how rebellious you are, how religious you are, how ridiculous you are. God can save you. Friends, that... Is good news. He can love you, save you, choose you, bless you in Christ. That's predestination in love. And it's a good and loving gift from a good and loving God who purposes and works to bring his chosen children all the way home in love. And I don't get it all, but I don't have to. He does. And I trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we just confess that truth. That we don't get this all. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to share our faith like it all depends on us and pray to you like it all depends on you. That we would... I mean, studying this and knowing this and understanding this, at least pieces of it, is very, very important. But far more important is seeking to obey what we clearly know rather than seeking all the time to know what you perhaps never intended for us to fully understand. And so help us to be faithful to the things that are clear and to live in the ways that you've called us to live. And Father, thank you. I mean, we just proclaim with, with Paul in thinking about all of this. After he writes chapters 9, 10, and 11, he comes to the end of 11 and he just exclaims, almost throwing up his arms like, I don't know what else to say. And we say with him, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your ways. How inscrutable your judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from you and through you and to you are all things. And to you be glory forever. Amen.